Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. Today, I have a distinguished journalism professor with me, Michelle Dodd, uh, who's a contributor to the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, uh, Time Magazine, uh, so many publications. You were a 2022 Faculty Lecturer of the Year at Chaffrey uh, College. Did I say that right, Michelle? Chaffrey College, but it's okay. Chaffrey. And you created an award-winning literary journal and creative collective, The Chafee Review. And you teach poetry, critical thinking in California institutions for men and women in Chino. And uh, we were just chatting before we started that um, Leslie Van Houten, famous Manson follower who is in the news wanting, you know, being paroled, uh, I hope, um, finally. Uh, so we can maybe talk about that. But I wanted to um, introduce my listeners, my, my followers, to your memoir, Forager, Field Notes on Surviving a Family Cult. And um, this was a memoir of your life growing up in an isolated mountain area in California, part of a, an apocalyptic cult. And, uh, and and uneducated, and how you found your way out of poverty and illness, and just learned a ton about the wilderness, which is a very unique feature of your book, each chapter uh, about foraging and using each um, chapter as a metaphor for things that you learned that has sustained you. And you've built such an amazing life, Michelle, uh, and and I have so many people who are born in authoritarian cults and and um, who are just become stellar scholars and made enormous contributions to the planet. And and lastly, I'll just say I I'm trying to help destigmatize the public's idea that only weak, stupid people you know, uneducated people can ever follow an authoritarian cult leader and do things against their conscience and against their own better judgment and such. Of course, you were born into it, so it was a different experience than me being recruited into the Moonies, but you've really, what a great life you've had. Kudos to you. So with that, I'm going to, you know, say, please tell our listeners a bit more about your life and, and how you came to write this book and what you're hoping that people will get from reading it, because I encourage people to read it as I did. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and thank you for having me um, on your show, and Thank you for the important work you're doing. I wish that I had discovered you in the first decade upon leaving because um, even though I do indeed have a good life, I struggled immensely for a very long time. And I love how you point out for anyone, for those who love people who have been in cults or those themselves who have um, had a former life as part of a cult for whatever reason, that there are so many just truly wonderfully warm and loving people who come out of cults. And, um, but the end result is not always positive. There are certainly many of, of the people I grew up with who took their own lives. It is a very grueling process to deprogram um, yep. beliefs about yourself uh, and, and a lot of self-rejection. And of course, there's some um, social rejection as well. So it's even more important to draw attention to how poorly many of us feel about ourselves after living under those kinds of restrictions. So I will say that writing this book has come later in my life rather than earlier, partly because of that. And I I want to be clear that I didn't want to tell a, quote, inspirational story in the sense of um, I don't want to negate the effects um, that transpire when you are programmed in high control groups to believe um, very, well, to believe lies, to believe lies. Yep. And many lies. And in my case, it has taken literally decades to unravel um, the belief systems that have kept me in fear. And mm -hmm. I've been very fortunate to be in a position to be able to get educated and to be able to use my education right. um, and to continue. I feel like I, well, I, I am always and continually learning more mm. 
um, not just about cults, but about but about ways to move in the world with kindness and grace and, and compassion. Beautiful. I, me too. Um, I, I love to learn and I am constantly fascinated to meet people with different fields of expertise and just grow my mind and my heart uh, to meet people from many different walks of life and such. Um, so many things that I want to say, but I guess I'd like to start by just saying that we came together because Megan Kelly approached us both and wanted to interview you and then me. And I had the good fortune to listen to your interview before she interviewed me. So um, I just learned a lot more than I had from reading your book about you and your journey. So uh, if people want, you know, to to check out Megan Kelly's interview with me or you or me, uh, that that's com you know coming out shortly. But let let's go back to um, why did you choose to pick foraging as the metaphor for your book? Well. I, I truly believe we are all foragers, even if we do not know what edible plants um, exist in our regions. Um, we're always foraging for something. We are finding our needs. And uh, many of us don't know what we're looking for. And I really liked the idea that um, I could write a book that would not appeal only to people who are part of high control groups, but that I could appeal to a wider audience of really all of us who are taught really rigid ways of thinking as children, because we all are in at least microcosms mm -hmm. in family systems that, yep. um, you know, a lot of it is unspoken. And so we're all given these rigid sets of rules. And then we go out into the world and we try to find what we need outside of our families. Um, if we're healthy, I think. And I also have come to believe, and it took me a long time that I wasn't only damaged by my upbringing, but that I was also given gifts. And um, they might have been dark gifts in many situations, but mm. um, those gifts that I received, I have used and they are tools. Mm -hmm. And so when I wanted to construct this, I didn't want to tell a horror story. I didn't want to just put trauma out there. Um, a lot of people don't love the expression trauma porn, but this idea that, that you know, we are all products of some form of trauma, I think is absolutely true. But I didn't want to pummel readers with the negativity of the experience, because mm. while that did exist, and um, continued, it continues to, to some level inside of me, um, that I have found tools for coping with that, and that those have served me in many areas of my life. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So uh, where to start? I, I guess I want to just comment because this is the first time we're talking that for me, um, becoming a mental health professional and now having almost 50 years of experience working with with people born in cults and and coming out of all types of mind control experiences, our minds and our bodies want to heal. Like it's an organic in our DNA. We want to heal and we want love and we want truth and we want respect. <laughs> and, and when we're raised in an authoritarian situation where the emphasis is obedience and this corporal punishment too, especially, and deprivation of exposure to other people from other points of view, religious points of view, etc. And we're given this in, uh, apocalyptic, the world's going to end fear uh, that's drilled into young children. Um, it forces a pseudo identity to be created, Michelle, a cult identity. And our real identity get, is there, but it gets suppressed. And there are moments where it pops up uh, but until we're able to get away from the environment, meet normal people who treat us with love and compassion and kindness, then it's like, you know, a breath of fresh air, uh, you know, a fresh water. It's like, oh, that's what water tastes like, the real thing, and not polluted water or or air and such. And when people come out, there's such a deep appreciation of having freedom. 
to then explore and develop ourselves. And so, you know, for me, I've dedicated my life to trying to identify the key patterns um, and teaching people how to heal themselves. Like as a therapist, I don't want the credit and I don't want people to look to me to say, fix me. I want to teach them what I've learned that helped me and that therapists have helped me to fix myself. And I want them to figure out the formula to their authentic self and what's blocking them from really being truly them uh, and, and, uh, and giving them what they're missing. And in many cases, it's this programming of the cult identity that's still on automatic pilot that if you leave the group, there's no purpose to be alive which moves people often to drugs or to suicide, unfortunately, or to mental illness. And it's, a, it's an epidemic, and it affects tens of millions of Americans as we speak. So how did you, from an poverty and no education, how did you become so educated and brilliant and that you're a professor and you're teaching other people? Please share. Well, I, I love how you describe the pseudo-identity of people when they're in the cult. My mother was born also into the cult that her father started. Mm. And my mother stayed her whole life. Um, I was with my mother when she died last year. I was mm. able to be present. Um, she was on hospice, so mm. she was already ill. And it was during the pandemic. So I was able to teach remotely, not just able to, I was required to. And mm -hmm. so... Um, I, what I was able to do was to be physically present with her. And um, she was still married to my father when she died. And mm. that process of not only compassion for her during that process, but the process of um, feeling inside of me that I was able to show up for her in her illness in a way that she couldn't fully show up for me during my illness was incredibly healing. And mm. she was in a hospital bed, but she did die at home. Um, but the hospital bed itself reminded me very much of my own years in the hospital. And I did spend years in the hospital as a child. And I was able to get in the hospital bed with her. And there was a mm. hospice nurse with us at the very end. And she told me that what I was doing was beautiful and that I, sh I could stay there as long as I wanted. Um, and I was able to hold my mother during many hours of the end of her life. Mm. And it is truly my mother who taught me, um, and we did not have a good relationship, but she did teach me to learn. Mm. And I want to give her credit for that. She was a brilliant woman who was suppressed herself. She was a constant learner. She knew the names of every, like nearly every, I'm sure there's something she didn't know, but nearly every species that existed on the mountain in which I was raised. Mm. And she cared about the insects, which wasn't an area that she had particularly studied. So she got to know an entomologist and she um, just studied and studied through just books, you know, self-taught about all the species. And she did teach me to eat um, of the earth but she also taught me to respect the earth. And mm. it's a really interesting juxtaposition, which many people do not think is compatible with Christianity. And, and our particular cult was non-sectarian, so we were not associated with any. They didn't even really call themselves Christians. They didn't like that terminology. They felt that that had been watered down. My grandfather was the only true prophet, so he didn't really believe um, that other Christian churches were truly believers. Mm. Um, that being said, he kept all of us small and my mother, because she was his daughter and possibly also because she was brilliant and he had three sons prior to having her, he, he sort of tolerated what she did on the side as long as she didn't do it in front of him. Mm. So he sent us to the mountain to live without him because we had nowhere else to go. Mm. And he had leased this particular property from the government in 1947 long before I was born. And so it was a pretty empty property that had a mess hall that was built in the 40s, maybe even the end of the 30s uh, with the WPA. So the, um, that there was all of that that came out of the depression. Mm. And we were raised in this one, well, at least for a small period of time, in this one room house or one room, like military quarters almost, um, and an outhouse and that kind of mm. thing. And while we were living there, my mother was just devoted to understanding where we were and to understanding how to give us the ability 
to survive when she left and mm. she was leaving all the time. So we were just there and it gave us a degree of confidence. Mm. Now, I will also say, I don't know that she did it for those reasons. Right. I, I think that it's very complicated, probably what she was really teaching us. Mm. Um, and a lot of times I'd learned by listening to her rather than her talking directly to me, like she was talking to somebody else. Um, yes. But in the process, I learned and I learned how to teach myself. Mm. Yeah, so, but for you, the, the maturity to you know, understand your mom was a victim too and to then show up for her in in her last um you know moments is huge it's such a gift and it just shows your maturity and your growth but you talk about your illness as a child would you share a bit about what what you had to go through and so when i was 10 years old i was diagnosed with idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura which is also known as itp and it's basically a blood disease i was in the hematology oncology unit of children's hospital in los angeles for three and a half years and then i went back in um, when i was anorexic had pneumonia i was i had other complications from not having a spleen and then also not um, having nutrition and not having cared for myself um, so I was back in the hospital at 16. But when I was 10 and originally sort of got dropped off at this hospital, my antibodies or my something in my body is an autoimmune disease, was covering all my platelets as well as other cells with um, antibodies. And so my spleen and other organs were filtering out all the platelets. And in my case, I had almost zero platelets. They can't even like count when it's below 5,000. I had below that. So they were unable to find platelets. And so I could ostensibly die from a cut of any sort, even potentially something as small as, you know, a paper cut. You could just, because it was nothing to clot my blood. But they did not know that's what I had initially. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a fairly uncommon, rare-ish disease that is not genetic in nature. Right. And it's very unknown where, yeah, that's why it's an idio, like at the beginning of the thing. So Right. So um, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I mean, I'm a PhD, but I'm not an MD. But I can tell you that a lot of people raised in cults um, because they aren't given the love and the nutrients, uh, physical as well as psychological and emotional. And because of this pseudo identity, and a lot of people have psychosomatic and autoimmune conditions. And the way I think of it is that humans are embodied minds. And when our minds are trapped, our bodies are trying to say, hey, pay attention, there's something wrong here. And and I, I may be completely shown in years to come that I'm off base with ITP, but my, my I do know many people get cancer and other illnesses, they get out of the cult, they get counseling, and their body heals themselves. And I'm not saying all the time, but a lot of the time. And one of the big problems, Michelle, is that doctors and mental health professionals are not trained to ask questions about, what was your childhood like? Did you think the world was coming to an end? Were you physically disciplined? Were you getting enough nutrition? Were you, you know, were you sleeping properly, et cetera? And sleep deprivation is universal. We know that the immune system needs seven to nine hours of sleep as an adult. And most people in cults don't get anywhere near that. I was severely sleep deprived my entire childhood. And, yeah, so that's, and that's right. a, big, a big reason I believe that this could have developed as early as 10 years of age, because we, we need sleep. And I reference Matthew Walker's work, Why We Sleep is a very, he's one of the I've world experts on sleep. Um, and, uh, how are you doing now? I hope your health is a lot better, hopefully. Yes. Yes. I had my spleen removed. And in my case, uh, that coupled with <laughs> getting educated and getting healthy, I, um, have no health concerns that I'm aware of at Great. all. So awesome. I'm very healthy. Wonderful. Great. And, uh, so 
All I can say is, so your grandfather was a prophet. Do you know his his influences? Because a lot of people who are cult leaders were in a cult first. And uh, I have a friend who was raised in the William Branham message cult. And, and he started doing a deep dive and realized, oh, the KKK were involved with that. Oh, the Nazis were involved with that. And Oh, Jim Jones was influenced by it, and he keeps finding other cults. And most recently, he talked about the Moses Berg of the Children of God cult was influenced by William Branham. Any guess what influences were on your grandfather? You know, if I'd known you were going to ask that question, I um, certainly would have given you a name that I know I researched at one time. But I can tell you that my grandfather was a teenager when he left Oklahoma. He was an orphan and he came to Hollywood and then um, to L.A. and then uh, to Pasadena. So he's in Southern California in the 1920s at a time where there were a lot of religious influences. And he did indeed join a church that is related to some of that. He also experimented with Scientology. Interesting. Yes. And then he was a Boy Scout leader. He didn't have any traditional education. He lied quite a bit about his education. But he um, was a Boy Scout troop leader and then found that he did not have enough control as a Boy Scout leader. So he um, transitioned but took some of the boys from his Boy Scout troops And then the way that he began the cult is entirely as a male organization, and it was all boys. It was not men. It was just boys. Hmm. My father um, ended up being one of those boys in the 1940s. But in the 19, it was 1931 for sure. There were newspaper articles labeling the cult as Boys Christian League at the time. And he, so for sure, he was leading him by then. It was really interesting for me to dig through the records and find some of those influences. But once 1931 hit, he never associated with another church again. He became his own church. And then when he married my grandmother, she was a pianist. And so he used her music to kind of build up this. And he would lead church in his house in Pasadena. And he had just a two-bedroom house at the beginning, and and he just brought boys in after school program, and then went from there. And it um, didn't expand into families until much much later. But every single person who ever came to the cult was there as a child. He did not mm-hmm. allow adults to enter. He trained them all from very young ages to have total total devotion to him. And there were men and well, there were boys at the time who joined in 1931, who followed them, him until his death in 1982. Wow. Does the cult exist anymore? Or is it now done? It has a different name. And I'm a little careful about it, because I don't have any direct evidence about what um, the cult does and doesn't teach. Now they say they've changed. They also my my father has told me that um, he he will not, well, he certainly won't read this, but he also will not speak to me because I use the word cults in relation to something that he devoted his life to. And so they are very, um, they, they say they've changed. Um, and I did go down there in order to um, speak at my mom's service after her death, but I don't know what is going on anymore. I mean, they certainly do have accredited education. They are able to, they have boys and girls, they have families, some things have changed. Your father sure. won't speak to you because you use the word cult. Correct. That's Correct. not healthy. <laughs> no, of course not. But they were very, very, very adamantly opposed to that word. And and to be fair, I was hesitant because I felt like it was just such a, my family had just pummeled into my head. This is not a cult. And then, of course, learning the definition of a cult Um, which my brother reached out to me afterwards. He said, I don't like that word. But he said, you cannot look at the way we were raised and call it anything else but a cult because it fits every single criteria, even like the full-blown criteria of having a mercurial leader who doesn't write things down. They controlled our sleep. They controlled our food. They controlled every aspect. We didn't have access to outside reading. We didn't have access to movies or, you know, contemporary culture. And, um, but my father very strongly, um, believes that I do not have the right to speak about this. And he said that he would ask the head of the organization who I was raised by, by myself, by the way, to, um, read it and tell him what to think. And that's literally what he said. He says he can read it and tell me what to think. I have heard from another source that he did not read it either because they, they don't want to know. They don't want to know. Well, they're afraid. 
I think that it's an irrational fear that's going on. So, you know, for me, I put together this bite model of authoritarian control, and so I list the criteria out. And in my way of thinking, I think about the influence continuum, and my perspective is cults exist along the entire continuum. So there's the cult of knitting, and there's the cult of <laughs> scuba diving, which I'm a member of. I love scuba diving. Um, there are people who love sports teams and they love, you know, celebrities and that, but it, they have informed consent. They can read whatever they want to read, associate with whoever they want to, and they can change their mind without fear or threats or phobias that, you know, God's going to judge them and they're going to rot in hell or be possessed by demons. And, um, so anyway, we can talk uh, another time if you want. I have a million ideas always about how to kind of get past the phobias that people have, especially, and if there's a word that's a bad trigger, don't use it. Like you don't need to use, you know, the C word if you don't want to. I've, I'm having a lot of media censorship for lack of a better way of saying it because I wrote a book called The Cult of Trump and I wasn't writing it, you know, putting down the people who were believing in Trump. I was writing it as a former member of a cult, you know, and this influence continuum saying, hey, consider these points and you decide for yourself whether or not it's a healthy cult or an authoritarian cult, et cetera. But I believe that, you know, it's your mind, you should control it and it's your life, right? Yeah. And uh, I've been using the expression, which I, I know you've heard me use today, high control groups, because it's less triggering for some people yeah. and cults are high control groups. So yeah, it does fit in there. Um, but there's yeah. there's ramifications for people who have spent at least the more time I think you spend in a high control group, the more difficulty you have extricating yourself. But I think it is a little bit similar to people who are in very toxic relationships, abusive relationships with like an individual, um, women, mm. well, men or women, um, who are you know in situations where they are physically and psychologically abused and are still drawn to keep coming back to that. And I, and I think that they're not weak people either. They're not, right. they are truly receiving something they need there and, and they have a sense of belonging and they have not yet extricated themselves. They're just enmeshed. And so there's so many ways that people can become deeply enmeshed in systems that are harming. Right, exactly. And what I've learned over the decades, and I've had many brilliant teachers like Dan Brown uh, and the, 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 the latest theories is that um, personality disorders are rooted in a lack of secure attachment in the first few years of life. And how to explain that is that a, a, an infant, or a baby, needs to feel like they're the center of the universe, and mom especially, but mom and dad will sacrifice their needs to take care of the baby's need, feed the baby and change the baby and keep the baby safe, etc. And if they if the baby doesn't feel this and have the mirror neurons of the mom and I know you're a mother, uh, you know, goo goo gaga, I love you and 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 have that kind of experience emotionally, then the self doesn't get to grow in a healthy way. And so there can be insecure attachment in different forms, but the, the person then winds up compensating and trying to, to feel important uh, by controlling other people, by having power, for example. But again, it's, it, it, it's my belief, people deep down inside, that our mechanisms want us to heal but then we can be attracted to partners who emulate the narcissistic parent, for example, in an unconscious effort to heal, but it doesn't work usually because narcissists don't change unless they realize I was really not parented in a healthy way. And there are techniques now using a particular type of attachment repair but a person has to engage in it and want to reparent themselves. And I'll just share for you and my listeners, it, it's so simple, but the strategy is basically asking the person, 
who is traumatized to go back to a, a moment where they were traumatized. And here's the magic uh, question. Imagine the ideal mother and ideal father unique to your personality. What would you have wanted them to say or do in that situation? And then just waiting. And the person then uses their imagination to rewire their brain. Like the historical memory is still always going to be there, but people can rewire their own brains and their own minds with healthy parents, what a healthy father would do, what a healthy mother would do. And it's fantastic and, and, and so healing to, instead of walking around feeling like there's something missing or being angry at your father or your mother because they did this or they didn't do that, and just saying that's the past and now I'm an adult and I want to I want to be healthy and I want to be a good parent to my kids. Thank it's you really... for sharing that. That is a wonderful tool. And I've certainly done a lot of work with reparenting, but I spent a lot of time looking for what I didn't receive. And um, a lot of that was unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and it's wonderful that there are tools out there that people can find sooner rather than later to begin to do the process, even if they don't have access to therapy. Yeah. And I, I, I wrote Combating Cult Mind Control in 1988 based on my cult experience being recruited at 19. And I started hearing from people who are like, I was born in the Jehovah's Witnesses or I was born in the Mormons. I don't have an identity. I just have the Mormon identity or the Watchtower identity. What do I do? And back then, the idea in psychology is you can't rewire your brain. There is no neuroplasticity or neurogenesis. But I just intuitively said, you make up your own identity. You're out now. Who do you want to be? I have no idea. Well, when when do you feel the most you? Oh, when I'm playing guitar, when I'm walking in nature, when I'm teaching kids or playing with puppies. I'm like, start there and then think about movies or books and people that you meet that you are like, that's a really cool person. I'd like to be more like them. I'm like, it's totally fine to like copy and imitate and try it on till it feels like, and, and you can create yourself the way you want to be moving to a healthy future self that you want to be. And it Absolutely. worked. And then 25 years later, I'm like, oh, there's now science that we can rewire our memories. It's like, oh, and we can make new brain cells too. How wonderful is, and I'm like, yeah, right? But it's, you know, again, I come back to it's your mind. You should know who you are and decide what you want to do with your life and what your values are and and um, you've made a life of helping others, and it's a beautiful thing, and, and it's a very fulfilling thing. And now the latest thing with psychology is mattering. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's not happiness. You know, it's not, you know, buying that extra uh, car or that, you know, having that extra, um, you know, clothes, particular type of clothes. It's like doing something that makes a difference is what yeah. really fills us as human beings and helping others who we can help is a joy. It really is. And I feel it's also just, um, I am so fortunate that I started teaching so young. Uh, I, I I went straight to grad school right after college, and I was very fortunate to get like a writer in residence position so that I was teaching at age 21. And, and because I've spent my entire life teaching, my entire adult life, and um, in some ways even before that, because I was, you know, parenting my younger siblings. And But what I found is that absolutely there are so many young people who are just searching for a way to we didn't call it reparenting back then, but like a way to teach themselves what they did not receive. And once you've witnessed that over and over, I, I was just serving as a mentor in an um, MFA program just the last few days um, that I, I've never been in that program before. And so many of those young people too, they were just so, um, so hungry for ways to re-envision themselves. Mm. And 
they were asking me all sorts of questions. And I said, you know, all the tools that I have been using for all these years to help students, I've kept in touch with enough of them that I could really absolutely tell you <laughs> that these work, you know, and in a lot of cases, I'm, I'm talking about writing tools, you know, like, yeah. like literal um, things that work professionally, but you do not have to be traditionally educated to have access to these things. And we are fortunate also to have um, the ability to watch masterclasses or watch things on YouTube so that we can find the information that we need. And um, there's no question that people can reinvent themselves. And neuroplasticity is something that we need to be so aware of. I teach in a community college and I'm very proud of that because there are people who come from all sorts of experiences. Um, many did not graduate from high school, many. I would say like I teach students all the time who didn't even do their GED, mm -hmm. um, but they can earn PhDs and I've watched that happen. And they come from a situation where they're hungry for knowledge and they're ready for it. Yeah. So we, we can change. Yeah, and you're obviously brilliant, but I want you to go back. So you're raised on a mountain Without public school, how did you become a college professor? Like, help my listeners understand, you know, you've really overcome adversity and share some of these things, these strategies. Well, I did get three years of public education, which I am extremely grateful for. And I do talk about that in the book, um, that that was hugely influential. I did learn to read in school. I went to kindergarten first and second before our family pulled us out. Um, I was very fortunate to um, really learn a lot in those years. So when I left at age seven, I was able to, by age eight, read the Bible cover to cover. I read the entire Bible when I was eight years old, and that was an education in and of itself. So um, I did have access to that reading material and to a great love of learning very early on. And then my mom, because she was so educated, she did, especially after her father died, she put together a sort of school that would later become accredited. Mm -hmm. And she um, really always would ask us, she didn't traditionally teach us, but she, and she never got in a position where she was ever our, our teacher. She didn't yeah. do a traditional homeschooling, but she would always ask us if we asked anything, what do you think? What do you think? And I think sometimes she didn't know the answer. <laughs> and I think sometimes she just thought, well, you're going to have to figure that out for yourself. So you might as well start now. And mm. that was um, a really wonderful way to start accessing knowledge. And my father was a builder, among other things, like worked to build buildings. And mm -hmm. he would use a lot of numbers for that. And so we learned to work with numbers and he would never let us use it. We didn't own a calculator, but also he didn't believe in them. And he said, everything you could do in your head. And I'm actually really good with numbers in my head to this day. And uh, he did. He required us to learn to remember numbers and then to learn to do fractions and decimals and that kind of thing in order to work with the materials we're working. So in that sense, I had a very hands-on education. And then I had an uncle who looked at the stars and was trying to figure out when Jesus came in relation or when Jesus was coming back in relation to when what happened in Bethlehem. And he drew all these diagrams and I would do the mathematical equations to figure out because my grandfather thought the world was going to end in 1977. He was sure. And then it didn't happen. So my uncle had to prove why my grandfather wasn't lying and that that, that the you know what the experts said the dates were. Um you know, BCE and all that weren't accurate, according to the stars. And so, you know, they were just very, very committed to um, figuring out justifications. Um, but in the process, I learned a lot of numbers. So that was useful. But so, I went to college at 17. And I would just say that I was very fortunate to get a full scholarship at a school that was very experimental. It's called Pitzer College, and they still are experimental now, but they started in the 60s, and they prided themselves in offering unconventional education. And I was not subjected to general education. I was like, just given the opportunity to work with a mentor my first day there who said, what do you care about? Let's put together a course schedule. You can study at any of the Claremont colleges you want. What interests you? Mm. And I did some theater and I did some music appreciation. I did some dance. And then I, you know, so I put together my education. And then eventually, like I had to do my major requirements, but um, I was a good reader. So I decided to major. And, you know, honestly, I understood Shakespeare, for example, because I'd been reading the King James Bible. So mm. I was able to um, do very well in college and to get a scholarship to go to grad school. And so that's what I did. Wow. So I just want to comment that I was in the Moonies 74 
to 76 before my deprogramming and the world was going to come to, you know, World War Three was going to come to an end in 1977 also, oh. by the way. Uh, it was going to be a war between the Soviet Union and America was going to be the last battle between good and evil. And in God 1977? And, yeah, in 1977. So Great. I, I just okay. mention that. <laughs> But I want to just be clear, when your dad was saying you need to know numbers, were you being taught to do it only in your head or were you writing them down? In my head. That's what I thought. So I want to just comment that that ability to visualize is so important and so incredible, and it's not typically taught in school, visual. I'm going to share a quick story with a, a man I counseled out of my former cult, the Moonies, who was a brilliant artist and singer and performer. And he had very low self-esteem because he was a terrible speller. But he could juggle five objects on a unicycle, no, no problem. And I was like, Chris, you were taught the wrong way to spell. You were taught to sound out the words. The only way to be a good speller is to visualize the word. And darn. And I said, you teach me how to juggle three things, and I'll teach you how to spell. So I, I, I held up a card with a word, and I'm like, take a picture. Ding. Close your eyes. Can you see it? Not yet. Okay. Ding. Close your eyes. Can you see it? And he was spelling backwards and forwards better than me within a few weeks, but it's just because he wasn't taught that visualization ability, right? And so, Absolutely, yeah. so your dad, I'm by an forcing, <laughs> by, yes, I bet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, the other thing with the parallel between you and me is I skipped eighth grade, so I went to college at 17 also. I wasn't reading the Bible at age eight, but I was reading Plato's Republic at, at age eight. And I was reading postgraduate level and people thought I was retarded at first. My parents were like, he's not speaking yet, what's wrong? And I like skipped a few stages where I, when I started speaking, I was speaking in sentences and they were like, what's up with this kid? In any case, back to you. Um, so you were also involved with helping people in prisons. Tell us I, about that. I do that actually as part of my profession. I uh -huh. am not teaching in the prison at this moment, but um, our we have a program inside the prison so that uh, the students, the incarcerated individuals can earn college credits and they can actually get associates of art degrees. And so when I teach in the prison, a prison, I am actually teaching four grades. You know, I am actually giving them real curriculum and I'm teaching the same curriculum that I teach in um, traditional college, but I have to teach it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And recently when I was teaching um, creative writing poetry in a men's, in the men's prison in Chino, the, what, the California institution for men, mm -hmm. Um, I had, you know, men who had been in the, in prison for 20, 30, 40 years um, for violent crimes, and they had never written a poem. I mean, they would never have thought of writing a poem, a poem in their life, but this particular course was required for their degree because they don't have choices of all the courses they could yeah. possibly take. And so they showed up and they learned to express themselves creatively. And I gave them journals and, you know, we'd bring in the resources. They didn't have access to the internet. So they had to work with whatever materials, which were approved, you know, by the prison. You have the warden who allows the materials to come in. And I had a situation in the women's prison where the materials were confiscated. So uh, technically I was uh, distributing, or I was about to distribute materials that they didn't approve of. So they were taken away. Mm. Um, so you work with the system that you have and you know, you, you do the best you can, but it has been such an eye-opening experience. And, and I felt that I was in my own form of prison as I was growing up. And I felt when I had this opportunity that, when I was given the training for what to expect and how to negotiate in within the walls that prison requires, I thought, oh, I know exactly what the walls are that a prison requires. It felt so familiar to me. And it felt also that I could have been them, you know, especially yeah. I, I started in the women's prison and 
I just felt that there was no difference between them and me. We were the mm. same. And they had been given certain opportunities um, to be parts of gangs or other forms of belonging that were very much like cults. And um, crime was the only way. There was a lot of them who were prostitutes. They had mm. um, often really young um sexual abusive experiences where they had yeah. children and were, you know, at ages t- as young as 10, mm. but 11 or 12 was common, you know, by uncles, stepfathers, cousins, they were just in situations where of course they responded in the ways that they did. And so right. it wasn't even a matter of compassion. It was literally just a matter of completely understanding that they did what they needed to do to survive and that those are really unhealthy ways to survive, but they were in unhealthy circumstances. And so I'm giving them the tools to educate themselves. And when they are released, hopefully when they get released, um, when they are and have some ability to rehabilitate that they won't need to go back to crime because they are in a different place. And, and I just think that sometimes we forget that that's possible and it and and so we don't give people opportunities to rehabilitate themselves. And when they're ready, you know, I, there's no reason why they can't change the circumstances of their lives. Yeah, and the current system in the U.S. is privatized and monetized, and it's not about helping people get better and reenter society. It's about destructive authoritarian mind control from my point of view in terms of my experience. And I I am so in awe of you that you were, were doing this. I have a small quick story to share. I don't know if you know the podcaster Jordan Harbinger, but I was on his show and we become friends and he was having a 40th birthday party at a maximum security prison for a program called Hustle 2.0 that teaches inmates and gives them college credits and such. And it was my first time in a prison, my first time interacting with murderers and people. And just as you were saying, it was like, there but the grace of God go I. And some people were in solitary for decades that I was interacting with. And it was such a a mind-expanding experience. And then I'll just add that I had lunch a few weeks ago with a man named Ramadan Shabazz, who, um, quick story, Vietnam vet, got addicted to uh, heroin, came back, committed a robbery, involved murdering two people, death row. He just got out of jail after 51 years. The sentence was commuted by the governor here, Charlie Baker. And I got to sit with him, and um, he was everything was such a joy. Like we were eating Indian food. It was his first Indian food in over 50 years. And he shared a video of him looking at the ocean for the first time. And it just, uh, it just was so moving. So um, when, when I read again that Leslie Van Houten was up for parole and it was going to be up to the governor. I couldn't help but, you know, message. I hope she can get out. And I think you responded. I actually, she's helped me in classes at when, and are you willing to share a little bit of that, please? Yes. Um, she, she actually earned a master's degree in English while she was incarcerated. I did not know her while she was doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had the role of tutor to the students that I was working with in the women's prison, obviously not in the men's prison. And um, it was her job then to help the students navigate the system, but help them write their papers. And then she would attend my classes mm. and she would work with the students when I was not physically in the prison. Mm. And so she was giving back in ways that um, I, I think, at least from what she said, and at least my observation was extremely helpful for the women that were learning from her, but also helpful for her to find herself in a position where she could share her knowledge and her love of learning. And I will say I had zero negative reactions from her, from any of the students. I was told ahead of time uh, when I was given my training that she would be present in my classes and they were worried that I would find that problematic because she's such a notorious 
criminal. But um, her story just is a big story. But there are plenty of people in prison who have committed similar crimes. Yeah. And I'll just say that Manson was a cult leader. And my friend John Atak, uh, who is an expert on Scientology, literally just told me that he found proof that Manson was in Scientology or received uh, 150 hours of Scientology training, or I call it indoctrination. And in that cult, Hubbard was a hypnotist, and they trained people to stare through people's eyes uh, as as a communication, quote unquote, technique. And I, I really believe that she was programmed and brainwashed as a 19-year-old to do this crime. Her, her profile before being in this cult was not indicative of her being an antisocial personality at all. So I do hope she gets out. Uh, that is sad and fascinating. And I could see all that being completely, yeah, I, yeah. That, that would fit with. Yeah. yeah. So, wow, so much. What a great life. You're such an inspiration. I guess I also want to say that one of the most important methods that psychiatrist Judith Herman uh, wrote about in her you know, her landmark book, uh, Trauma and Recovery, is people writing their stories and being believed, telling their stories and being believed. And I, in in my in my book, I say, write your story out. You know, you get some perspective, and put it out in words. And I know Jarette Bouillon and Karen Young and other ex-members are sharing this what they've learned about writing to other ex-members as a method for healing themselves. That is beautiful. Can I plug something right now? Of course, please. <laughs> um, you know, first of all, it took me a very long time to go public with my story, but I would like to say that one of the most healing things that has happened since the book came out is that many former members who knew me when I was a child, um, some, most of whom I remember, like just a little bit, um, I, they, I might have known them when I was four or five or six years old, and they were excommunicated, and I had not seen them, and they showed up at my events, and this happened everywhere that I was, in every bookstore, there'd be former members who would come, and then they would tell me their stories, and they have been telling me their stories, and on private messages and social media, and they'll share stories that they knew that happened to me when I was a kid, and it's like, it's more than being believed, it's being validated, because they're giving me a different perspective on the same thing, yes. and it made me feel like I wasn't crazy for feeling that, like, these things had, I was, you know, I had some of them, um, even stuff that happened prior to what takes place in the book, I couldn't prove that they happened, but um, they were sort of, I guess, referenced in the book without a lot of detail, or even the experience that we had in the swamps with Ross Allen. One of the women was um, 14 when she was there. And she said, my husband said, that's impossible that it could have happened. She said, I told him about it ahead of time. And he said, nobody would take girls in the middle of the night into this swamp. And um, then she read the book. She's like, look, like she talks about it too. Like this must've really happened. And uh, we had never spoken ever to each other. Right. And so it's interesting having the um, same views. But anyway, I am teaching um, a course called Creative Nonfiction, which is one of the courses I was teaching in the women's prison to help them tell their stories and learn to craft not just the stories of their crimes, but their stories of who they are and how they um, became <laughs> to be mm -hmm. um, whoever they are. And, and they were all writing um, aspects of their own story. And I'm teaching online. Uh, I'm teaching a couple sections. I'm also teaching for Orion magazine. But if anybody um, wants to, I, there's plenty of programs that are online, not just the ones I'm teaching in. But I do teach at a community college, which means that you can take um, the course for uh, very inexpensive. And you can get the experience of, of learning how to craft um, your story. And not that you ever need to let anybody read it if you don't want, but um, it, it can it can help provide a structure for learning to talk about your own life. And I am fascinated by everyone's story. And I'm so grateful that I get to do this work yes. because I get to work with so many, so many people of all different ages who are ready 
to start exploring. Yeah, I want to plug your thing. And when we (laughs) post the blog based on this interview and embed the video, we'll put links to your how people can sign up and know more about you. And as you were talking and telling about people coming from your cult saying hi, and let me tell you my memories of it, how validating that is, absolutely, thousand percent. And I had a fantasy of of you inviting me and a whole group of these on a Zoom and mm-hmm. us like just doing a little, you know, thing for each other about oh, processing things. Yes, I've learned so much just listening to the interviews that you have done with former cult members and on, on your podcast. And just, yes, the degree of which listening to other people's stories, you, you feel that connection. You think, yes, me too. And that is how I felt in the women's prison as well, even though I was fortunate enough not to have to commit crimes as, an, you know, as, right. as a young adult when I got out. But I usually could have under yeah. other circumstances, of course. Yeah, yeah, I felt the same way. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I, 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 there are, there are ex members are like, I can't write. I'm like, dictate it and transcribe it. And then you can like sort it by chronology and by people or by places or by experiences, good or bad, but just start unpacking it out of your brain, get it on paper and then it, it's editing, editing, editing. <laughs> it's- there, everyone, everyone can write. Everyone can learn to write. It is. Um, you may not be gifted in it, but you can learn to tell a story. It is absolutely a, a teachable skill and a learnable skill. Yeah. So I, I'm going to just add one. I'm talking a lot about my own story, but I, I'm relating with you so much. But I was a poetry major in college when I was recruited, and part of my demonstration of my faith was throwing out all of my original work uh, uh, in the, um, you know, Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son and they gave me that story. Are you willing to sacrifice your, your, your most favored? And I'm like, "Uh, yes, of course. Anyway, so I'm in now 69 and I'm like, I should start writing again, poetry. I've been writing all this nonfiction psychology stuff. I should, I need to get back into a writing, a creative writing program. So if you're teaching anything online, I'm there. (laughs) All right. I I believe that the poetry exists in you. It's just a matter of um, finding a way to let it come out. Um, Poetry is such a beautiful art. I, I think we are all poets, quite honestly. I think we all have it in us. Yeah, I found myself back you know, I was recruited at 19, but back then, pre-Moonies, I would just like enter an altered state and words would just come out of me and I'd be writing them down. I wasn't conscious, but it was just, and then then you edit, but it's just like tuning into that channel within yourself and giving yourself permission to just let it flow. Yes. Giving ourselves permission, absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah. So any last words? I'm I'm so <laughs> grateful to get to meet you on virtually. Maybe we get to meet in person someday. And so grateful for all that you've done. And thank you for this book. It's I highly recommend it. It's called Forager Field Notes on Surviving a Family Cult by Michelle Dodd. Thank you so much, Steve. And I'll add that authoritarian regimes get rid of their artists first because the art that comes out of us is the part that resists um, being controlled. So, of course, they asked you to sacrifice that. And um, part of my purpose in writing this book is to ask everyone to celebrate the parts of them that have not been destroyed, even though they've been suppressed. Yes, so to reframe that, to celebrate our authentic selves that are creative and generative and want to rebel against authoritarian people and forces. How does that sound? That sounds perfect. Let's celebrate that. Yay. Thank you, Michelle. Take care now. Thank you. So good chatting with you. Likewise. Bye. 
That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.